you know, for pastors, the joke is Sunday is our Super Bowl. Easter Sunday is our Super Bowl. So it's a big day. But for those of you who are visiting with us, we've been in a series that we've entitled Bible Basics. And the reason why we're in this series is because there's a lot of people who don't know the basic things of Christianity. And because they don't, we're covering them and the significance and the implications of what those things mean. And last week, we looked at Jesus' death, his death as our substitute. And this week, we're looking at the resurrection, and we're going to look at the significance of Easter. See, Jesus' resurrection, it brings all of the pieces of everything that we've been looking at together. It completes the puzzle of God's story. But to understand the resurrection, we have to retell the story again. See, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, God creates the universe and everything in it in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rests, which means he's delighting in all that he has done in creation. And as spectacular as creation is, I mean, when you look at the stars and you think of the vastness of the universe, when you're sitting on an ocean side watching a sunset, when you're in the mountains and you see a waterfall, as spectacular as creation is, it doesn't compare to us. God created us, man as male and female, to be the crown of his creation. God made us in his image. God exalted us and gave us dominion over all that he has made. And then in Genesis 2, God covenantally binds himself to us in such a way that he revolves his life around living for the good of his people. And then this is why God puts Adam in the garden. He's showing him his loyalty. He's proving his loyalty. He's showing that he withholds nothing. He provides everything for man. And then in chapter 2, verses 16 through, or chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, we see that God demands a loyal commitment in return. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Theologians call this the covenant of works. So we know that if Adam disobeys, he's going to experience the curse of the covenant, the punishment of the covenant breaking, which is what? Death. Well, what would happen if Adam obeyed? Adam would receive the blessing of eternal life, supra, ultra, glorified life, which shows us that even though we were created in God's image, it means that we are not completely and fully perfected in God's image. Man, Adam and Eve, had to work first like God before they could enter into rest. But we know what happens in the story, don't we? They failed in their image-bearing work. They failed to guard the garden. They failed 
by not judging the serpent as evil and crushing him in judgment. They failed because they aligned themselves with the serpent. And because they did, all of God's kingdom got turned upside down. See, like Esau selling his birthright over food, Adam and Eve sold their glorious birthright to Satan over the forbidden fruit. So now all of creation is affected. God's image bearers have rebelled against their creator. They broke the covenantal relationship with God. They aligned themselves with the serpent. And now instead of imaging forth God, we image forth the serpent. Instead of revolving our life around God and depending on God as the source of life, we have now declared our independence from God where now we worship and serve created things instead of our creator. Instead of having dominion over creation, we now subject ourselves and are ruled by things in creation. Instead of depending on God's word as the basis of reality and the only authority to determine truth, we now look to ourselves as the ultimate authority that determines truth. And what is most real to us is no longer what God says. It's now what we see. The joyous freedom of life under the rule of God as his image bearers has been taken over by the terrifying tyrants of Satan, sin, and death. And all of our fig leaf attempts to try to save ourselves and regain God's favor. <sighs> See, sin has wrecked our relationship with God. Sin has wrecked our relationship to one another. Sin has wrecked and affected all of creation. But even worse than all of this, in Genesis 3, through 24, man lost. God's favor. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. Adam and Eve were driven out of the place where God's presence dwelt. The intimate fellowship that they shared with God is now gone. The ones who were to guard the garden are now guarded from the garden where God put two cherubim. These are glorious angelic beings two cherubim to guard it, and there's a flashing, flaming sword that's going in all directions so they could not enter back in. And because we have lost God's favor, all of us have been on a quest ever since to find it, to regain it. But amidst all of this rebellion, we are told that all is not lost because instead of ultimate condemnation, God graciously subjected the world to corruption. And because he subjected the world to corruption, it opened the door for redemption. A redemption who would come, that would come through God's promised champion. You see, when God is judging the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15, he promises, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he, singular, somebody from the line of the woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent while the serpent strikes his heel. In other words, this is the first announcement of the gospel. This is where God is promising a redeemer, someone who would come from the line of the woman and who would do all that Adam failed to do. He would crush the serpent. He would render the serpent powerless. And when he's rendered powerless, he would reverse the consequences of the fall and he would restore God's kingdom. The curse that is pronounced upon the serpent, it's a declaration of holy war. And there are only two sides in all of history. There are those who trust in God's grace to save them the line of the woman, or those who image forth the serpent and who try to save themselves, the line of the serpent. This war begins with the woman and the serpent, and it continues throughout all of history until the promised particular singular seed comes, and that seed is Jesus. Jesus is the one who would crush the serpent's head, rendering him powerless. Jesus is the one who would reverse the consequences of the fall. Jesus is the seed who would restore God's kingdom. But as we saw last week, he died. And because he died, we're left to wonder, did he fail? Did the terrifying tyrants of sin, death, and darkness win? Did Satan defeat God's champion? Well, let's find out. I'm going to start by reading John. We're going to skip all around. And normally I exegete and expound on one passage, but again, we're doing the topic. So we're going to look at these other passages as well. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, then verse 8, and then verses 11 through 16. Now, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and he said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I jumped down to verse 8. Then the other disciple who has reached the tomb first, he went in, and he saw the empty tomb, and he believed. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside. So John and Peter had come. They've seen the empty tomb, and then they leave to go home. So Mary comes now by herself. She's standing there weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, 
which means teacher. Now jump to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 22 through 24. This is Peter preaching where he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read some of this. It was part of our scripture reading, but I just want to read 14 through, no, 1 through 5, actually. Now, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. Now, flip back, <laughs> Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Paul here is talking about Abraham, and he's using Abraham as an example to prove his point. And his point is this, Abraham was declared by God to be righteous, not because of anything that Abraham did, but because of what Abraham believed. So now Paul says this, but these words, it was counted to him as righteous, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're going to jump right in. All right, the story is told that after recovering from a severe physical illness, the great reformer Martin Luther went into a deep depression. One biographer described his condition this way. Physically, Luther was well, but mentally he was despondent. He fell into a state, and I'm going to butcher this word, fell into a state of, is it lethargy or lethargy? I don't know, but let's, we'll go with that. What is it? Lethargy. There we go. All right. See, I was practicing. I knew I was going to butcher it. And nothing seemed to be able to bring him out of it. His wife, Catherine, she tried everything she could think of to bring him out of it, but nothing worked. Friends came over daily to talk to him and to try to cheer him, but none of them could. One friend said to Catherine, something's got to happen to bring him out of this state of mind. There's no fight left in the good doctor. Catherine, she did not answer. She stared at the closed study door with a thoughtful expression. <laughs> so that evening, she went into her room, dressed in her funeral clothes, and as a final touch, she also put on a heavy black veil that covered her face. She went slowly up the stairs and entered into Luther's study. He was sitting at his desk, his hands idle, his eyes staring vacantly into space. And when he saw his wife, his mouth dropped, Catherine, what in the world is the matter? Why are you dressed in mourning clothes? Catherine turned a sad face toward her husband and said, it's terrible. It's just terrible. What? Luther said, 
God is dead, Catherine said. What do you mean God is dead, Luther thundered. What in heaven's name are you talking about? Then Catherine said, are you not Dr. Luther? Are you not also my pastor as well as my husband? He nodded dumbly. Then judging by your actions these past few weeks, I can see that God is dead. If he weren't, then you would use your great faith in him to help you out of this lethargy. Do you live as if Jesus is still dead in the tomb? Do you believe that it is impossible for people to change? That it's impossible for you to change? When things don't go your way or when you suffer, do you think that God does not care? Do you think that God does not know what you're going through? Do you think that God has abandoned you? I mean, when you look at the world today and all the events going on, are you like Chicken Little? The sky is falling. And believe that Jesus is not on the throne. Instead, he's still dead in the tomb. Or how about this? How about when you're struggling with a particular sin and you keep giving into it? Because you keep struggling, do you think that the sin is more powerful than God? I mean, why, he, why won't he take the struggle away? Why won't he give me the strength to resist it? Because it's still a struggle, do you feel trapped and hopeless? Believing that your sin can't be conquered, that it's too powerful? Is your sin an unconquerable giant that can't be slain? Have you lost hope in God's power Believing you can't change. And because of that, you're ready to give in and give up. Or I could ask this. What is your life like when you are convinced that God does not love you? Do you live in fear? Or do you live in freedom? Are you intimate with God or are you distant from God? Do you openly and honestly confess your sin or do you hide and cover it up? Now, when our kids were younger, when I came home, my mood greatly affected their mood. If I came home with a frown, whoo, get away from dad, don't go near dad. Don't bother dad. Walk on eggshells around dad. But if I had a smile, they flocked to me. They wanted to be with me. Why is Easter such a big deal? Because Jesus' resurrection is a sign to the world that God smiles upon his son. And that he smiles upon all of those who trust in him. Jesus' resurrection, in other words, changes everything. So let's see why and let's see how. Flip to John 20. 
we already explained it. It's the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus' grave to finish preparing the body of her Lord. It's still dark. She sees the stone rolled away and immediately concludes somebody stole the body. So she runs back, tells Peter and John. Peter and John come running to the tomb, but John gets there first because he's faster than Peter, which is why some people might think Peter was a little hefty. Who knows? But he, John reaches the tomb first. He doesn't go in, though. He just looks, and then it clicks. Peter looks, or he goes in and looks, and he can't figure it out. So they both leave, and then in verse 11, Mary arrives after they had left, and her world couldn't get any worse, could it? She had just witnessed the suffering and the death of her Savior, of her Lord, of Jesus. She is in deep despair, and now she thinks somebody is desecrating the body by stealing it. She's weeping, and then in verses 12 through 13, she looks in. And she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was, one at the head and one at the feet. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid them. And then all of a sudden, she senses that there's somebody else there. And she turns, and she sees Jesus, but thinks he's the gardener. And Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You see, Mary is seeking a Jesus who does not exist. Mary is seeking a dead Lord. And you and I have to understand something. Jesus' life and death means nothing if he did not rise from the grave. So what if he lived a good life? So what if he was an amazing teacher? So what if he helped and healed people? So what if he lived and died for us? None of that means anything if he's still in the grave. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 19 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. This is why he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And we ought to be the most pitied people in all of the world. See, if Jesus is still in the grave, there's no victory over sin and death. If Jesus is still in the grave, there's no relationship with God. There's no salvation. There is no hope of change. There is no forgiveness. There is no new life. If Jesus did not raise from the grave, then our faith is worthless. And we ought to be the most pitied people in all the world. But... If he did rise from the grave, changes everything. You see, in John 20, there are three very significant things happening. And I don't want you to miss what they are. The first one is don't miss the significance of verse 1. What day was it? The first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. Okay? So do you see what's going on here? What day was it when Jesus cried out, it is finished? We are told it was the day of preparation for the Passover, right? Which means the Passover is happening Friday night, the day that he died. 
And why were they in such a hurry to get the body down off the grave? Why? Because what's coming? The Sabbath. The next day. On Saturday. <laughs> so when Jesus cried out, it is finished. It was on the sixth day. <laughs> and what's he doing on the seventh? He's resting. He has entered God's eternal Sabbath, rest. And then in chapter 20, verse 1, we're told it was the first day of the week when he rose. <laughs> A new week signifying Jesus rose. So there's a new beginning. There's a new creation. There is a new age that has dawned. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection is God's confirmation that the work has been done. Jesus has finished the work of redemption and he has entered God's eternal Sabbath rest where God glorifies him. But there are two more things. In John 19, 41, we're told that Jesus' tomb was located in a garden and in John 20, 15, Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. <laughs> but in reality, she's not mistaken. <laughs> Jesus is the gardener. Adam was placed in the garden to work it and to guard it, but he failed as God's gardener. So he was kicked out, he was banished, he was barred from the tree of life. And to ensure that Adam and Eve could not enter back in, what happened? God places two cherubim, <laughs> two cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. Look at chapter 20, verse 12. When Mary comes, what does she see? Two angels sitting where the head had been and where the feet had been. Does two angels on top of a surface ring any bells? The two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the holiest of holies in the temple where once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would bring the blood of the sacrifice animal, pour it on top of the ark between the two cherubim. And you know what that place was called? The mercy seat. Mary's staring at the mercy seat where the Lamb of God's slain blood was poured out. <laughs> Holy cow. But what are the angels doing? They're sitting. Why is this significant? They're not standing. Why? Because they are no longer guarding God's presence. <laughs> which means mercy has been granted now. The way into God's presence is now open for you to experience life. 
In other words, Jesus is not just the Lamb of God. He's the second Adam. He's the true gardener who did what Adam failed to do. And because he did, he earns the right to glorified eternal life. God's mercy is granted. The way is opened, which means Jesus' death was not his defeat. It was his victory. Jesus' death was not his last hour. It was his finest hour. Because the empty tomb tells us that death does not have the last word. The empty tomb tells us that God's word, life, has now been won through Jesus' righteousness, which means righteousness has been achieved, which means sin's penalty has been paid, which means a new age has dawned. Jesus' death was his conquest. His resurrection is his glory. See, this is what Easter is all about. God raised Jesus from the dead because he's the only one who didn't merit the wage of death. Jesus' perfect, sinless life achieved and recovered righteousness. Therefore, Jesus earns eternal life. See, Easter, in other words, it's about Jesus' justification. Easter is God's confirmation that somebody did it. Somebody achieved righteousness. But it's Jesus alone who does it. See, in all of human history, in other words, there's only one person that God smiles upon. In all of human history, there is only one person who God does not reject. In all of human history, there is only one person who finds God's favor. See, the resurrection is God's smile upon his son because he found the one. Because only Jesus perfectly reflects God. Only Jesus perfectly obeys God's law. Only Jesus treasured the glory of God above all things by obeying him even to the point of death. See, this is fascinating. The one without sin conquered sin. And because he did, death has no authority. Death has no claim over him. This is why Peter in Acts 2 says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed, but God raised him up. Why? Because death has no authority over him. Death could not hold and contain him and keep him. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who didn't deserve to die which means Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works, <laughs> which means he achieved righteousness. And because he did, God raised him from the dead and gives him what he deserves, a glorified, eternal life. 
But Jesus, it's not just about Jesus's justif- or Easter is not just about Jesus's justification. It's about ours. This is why Paul in Romans four, talking about Abraham, how he was declared and counted to be righteous because he believed in God's promise of grace. Paul says this, but the words that was counted to him as righteousness were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the one who knew no sin became sin. And by becoming sin and going to the cross, he pays for sin's penalty. He was handed over for our trespasses. But don't miss this, because sin's penalty has been paid, and because Jesus achieved righteousness, now God gives the gift of Jesus' righteousness to those who believe. Ah, Lee, what does that mean? He was raised for our justification. You see, ever since sin entered the world, Adam and Eve lost God's favor, and all of us have been on a desperate quest to try to regain and find God's favor. So how do we find God's favor? In a word, faith. But this isn't just a general, abstract faith where, oh, you know, I believe, in, I believe that God exists. No, this is a specific, this is an active, this is an ongoing, I bank everything in my life on it kind of faith. It's faith in the fact that God's favor is upon you for one reason and one reason only. Because you trust in the only one who was favorable to God. See, in Romans 4, Paul is arguing that the only way to find God's favor is to abandon all trust in yourself. Why? Because you can do nothing to earn God's favor. You can do nothing to get it. The only hope that sinners have, in other words, is to stop looking to themselves and to look to Jesus and his righteousness. See, Jesus is the only one who is righteous. Jesus is God's gift of grace, which means God frowns on all who trust in themselves. God frowns on all who think they can do something to earn his smile. God frowns on all of the ways that we trust in ourselves and don't trust in Jesus. But (laughs) his smile will never leave those who trust Jesus as their substitute and as their savior who trust that he not only died for me, but he lived and rose for me. See, when you trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the only way to find God's favor, hear me, 
(laughs) What God declares about his son is what he declares about you. Which means Jesus' righteousness is your righteousness. So when God looks at you, what does he say? I declare you righteous. I delight in you. (laughs) You have my favor. What does that mean? It means that God will never frown on you. It means that God's smile can never be taken from you. It means that the love that the father has for his son is the love that he has for you. It's an eternal love. It's an infinite love. It is a limitless love that cannot increase and it cannot decrease. Or I could say it this way. Another way of saying what I'm trying to say. Jesus worked so you could enter into God's eternal Sabbath rest. Jesus worked so you could rest in knowing that you have God's eternal delight and favor. (laughs) So now, because Jesus is no longer in the grave, we are not the most pitied of all people. Our faith is not... In vain, because of the empty tomb, we ought to be the most joyous people in the world. We ought to be the most grateful people in the world. We ought to be the most loving people, the most gracious people, the most humble people, the most hopeful people in the world. Why? Because we know that Jesus conquered the terrifying tyrants of Satan sin, and death, which means he saved us from what our sins deserve. He covers us with his righteousness. He adopts us into his family, which means there's always hope of new life. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he won. (laughs) And because he won, we win So rest in Jesus' resurrection, trust in what the Bible says, and sing with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Amen.